Recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christogonia Saturdays. Today is Saturday, May 9, 2015. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, in whom is our only hope, which we should um, see by the end of this evening, I pray. And thank you for listening. Tonight we are going to discuss what has come to be known as the Holodomor, a word which refers to the terror famine in the Ukraine and the genocide against Ukrainians and Germans in Ukraine, which was conducted by the Bolsheviks over 12 years in the 1920s and 30s. While this topic is becoming discussed more and more in certain circles, and several prominent books were put out discussing and, and documenting the Holodomor at great length, as far back as the 1980s, 30 years ago, it has not yet managed to pervade the public consciousness which is a testament in itself of the degree of Jewish control over the media, where their own claims concerning a Holocaust are fervently repeated each and every day. So we do this for the purpose of lending our voice to the ever-growing choir. For this discussion, we are going to use as our primary source an article which ran in the Barnes Review in July of 1996. We will, however, include several other materials, and we also have plenty of our own comments. We have only a couple of small disclaimers, however, and that is that the author of this article seems to concede a Jewish holocaust perpetrated by Germany. However, that is not truly the case. Also, he offers some quotes from some Jewish sources, as if that gives legitimacy to the facts of the Holodomor. That is fine, but we hope that what Europeans realize, that we do not need Jews to learn about Jewish treachery. It seems that self-hating Jews are all too popular in certain white nationalist circles, and that whites, even awakened white conspiracy theorists, awakened white revisionist historians, go too far in their search to find a good Jew. It leads to the mistaken belief, this love that whites have for self-hating Jews, that there may actually be some good devils, which is certainly not the case. With this, we will move on to our primary source for this topic of discussion, which this evening will be the article... The Other Holocaust, The Terror Famine in Ukraine, written by Peter J. Lorden. This article was first published in the July 1996 edition of the Barnes Review. The um, editor's subtitle, or introduction to the article, if you will, or blurb, says that people talk about the Holocaust as if there had been only 
one this century. And that one, unique in human history, but one of the one inflicted by Joseph Stalin Jugashvili on Ukraine. If I could say his last name right. His real last name is Jugashvili. And um, people that I know that are fluent in Russian have, have attested that his last name, the form of his last name, betrays that it is a Jewish name, even if he may not have been a practicing Jew by religion. Joseph Stalin, it is very possible, or perhaps likely, was a Jew by race. Although Ukraine's Holocaust, by famine, resulted in the deaths of many more people than were ever attributed to Adolf Hitler in the quote-unquote official Holocaust. And although it happened only a few years earlier, few now have any perception of it. That's understandable, as only one Holocaust is taught in our schools and constantly featured in the media. Could this be because those media are heavily influenced by people who have much to gain by promoting one while drawing a blackout curtain across the other? It is merely by accident, or is it merely by accident, that obsessive promotion of the one would be diminished by extensive disclosure of the horrors and dimensions of the other. Whatever the reasons for this disparity, surely it is time to right the balance. What historian Alfred Lilienthal labeled 20 years ago as Holocaustomania still continues. This was in 1996. Of course, it's even worse today. Still continues in a torrent of books, movies, and all manner of media drum beating, leading some Israelis offended by this exploitation to quip, there's no business like Shoah business. No such exposure has occurred relative to Ukraine's Holocaust, although that tragedy is well documented. And we will um, let elapse the, the the Jewish pundits that are quoted here. That that um, even those who dislike the drum beating of the Holocaust purport that there was one, and there certainly was not any sort of Holocaust against the Jews, like Adolf Hitler and the National Socialists are accused of. Back to Peter Lorden. Harvard historian James E. Mace was being conservative when he wrote in his book Famine in Ukraine, 1932-33. The Ukraine famine was a deliberate act of genocide. Now, the, uh, this article is going to um, produce documentation that the, the Ukraine famine of 1932 and 1933 was actually the second terror famine in the Ukraine, not the first. There were two Moors in reality, and we will get to that. The Ukraine famine was a deliberate act of genocide. Marco Karinic, writing in the same book under the heading Blind Eye to Murder, wrote, 
the victims of the famine in Ukraine were consigned to their slow and agonizing deaths, where once again, democratic governments, meaning Britain and America ostensibly, maintained normal relations and cooperated in suppressing news about a genocide. Eight months after he became president, in March of 1933, that's when he was inaugurated, Roosevelt officially normalized relations with the Soviet Union on November 16th, of 1933. Now, here in this article, and I'm going to discuss the pictures in the article because the captions are actually pretty good. Here in this article, there's a picture of Ukrainian children evidently begging for food. And the caption reads, this emaciated Ukrainian boy, the boy who stands in the foreground, appears to be begging for the most basic mortal necessity, food. A Communist Party functionary wrote, Starvation had wiped every trace of youth from their faces, turning them into tortured gargoyles. The author, author, the author Arthur Kostler, observed that party-controlled Ukrainian newspapers ran pictures of healthy, smiling children while skeletons tottered in the streets. And Lorden continues... To say yet, the only official holocaust, I'm sorry, only the official holocaust has been globally recognized. Karanik adding that the other has been met with some, by some with a conspiracy of silence that is little short of criminal. Wasil Prish. Hrishko's, I'm sorry, some of these names are going to be difficult. Wasil Hrishko's book, The Ukrainian Holocaust of 1933, was published in 1983. And Miran Dolat's book, Execution by Hunger, The Hidden Holocaust, was published in 1985. The later of these stated... History has not recorded another such crime as the famine perpetrated against an entire nation, nor one ever carried out in such a cold-blooded manner. That Miranda Lott was not exaggerating is made horribly clear in the definitive work on this tragedy, Robert Conquest's book, The Harvest of Sorrow, published in 1986. Yet none of these well-documented accounts seem to have had much effect on public consciousness anywhere. How quickly the world forgets victims of even the most colossal evildoing when those aware of it lack the means to gain public awareness. On an individual basis, perhaps the best remedy would be to ask of anyone bringing up the Holocaust, which one are you referring to? And Miran Dolat's Execution by Hunger, The Hidden Holocaust, in 19, published in 1985, 
is now available as a Kindle book or, or in electronic format. And we've recently obtained a copy. We haven't had a chance to um, track the cover on it yet. The, um, the more famous book is Conquest's Harvest of Sorrow. And Robert Conquest has even written um, introductions and forewords for other authors who have written on the topic since. His book is not available in, elect in electronic format, but it is still available in print format. But these books, these books could be available forever, right on Amazon.com, and they are. And that doesn't bother the, um, the powers that be. We see examples of this all the time. I did a program a couple of years ago on, on um, entitled Lambs to the Slaughter, which discussed books that had been for sale on Amazon.com and, and books published for years, which accuse um, people in high places and dignitaries of some very horrific acts of um, sexual indiscretion against children. And these books are still for sale. They cannot be blasphemous. They cannot be slanderous. They cannot be libelous because they've been for sale for 20 years. And, and the, the media and the powers that be just ignore them because if they filed lawsuits, if, if they made accusations of libel and slander, all this information would become public. So they just even though these books are readily available, they just ignore their existence. And the very few people who come across them and find them, they just write off. They don't even bother with it. They don't bother pursuing the authors or stopping the publication of these books. And that alone proves that the material in the books is true. Otherwise, these people have all the money in the world, these people being accused, to put, the, put a stop to these books. And they don't. I mean, a lot of us that aren't in a position to hire lawyers have to accept being slandered. That's the way it is. But these powerful people with hundreds of millions of dollars, they don't have to accept being slandered. They could just write a check for a, a, a week's worth of expenses off to some lawyer. It, it's a drop in a bucket to them. And the lawyer would go after those people and shut those books down. The books must be true. That's the bottom line. But the powers that be can ignore them. And if 300,000 people find these books and read them, to them, it's a drop of the bucket because CNN and, and MSNBC and Fox News and all of their propaganda outlets reach hundreds of millions of people every day. So what's two or 300,000? That's enough of that digression. Only a great novelist could make those murdered millions rise and walk before us, make us feel the shame and despair of people deliberately reduced to feeding on grass and tree bark, on diseased horses and dead humans, even the bodies of their own children. Vasily Grossman's forever flowing goes some way toward that forever flowing. 
Others can only recite the bare facts of what happened and who was responsible. The first thing to be grasped about the Ukrainian Holocaust, the greatest single crime of our century, is that it arose within a system which was profoundly evil. Whoever doubts that need only consult Stalin's Secret War by Nikolai Tolstoy, to whom any writer on this subject must be deeply indebted. For the sheer magnitude of its crimes against humanity, nothing in history can match those of the Bolshevik regime. V.I. Lenin, who was born as Yulianov, had declared at the outset, the scientific concept of dictatorship means nothing more or less than unrestricted power resting directly on the use of force. Yes, the dictatorship of one party. For its rule to be absolute, people must be made utterly dependent on the state. Thus, private property was to be abolished along with religion and nationalism. Only one loyalty was to be permitted, loyalty to the party, which later became loyalty to the perversely deified Stalin. We have a slight variation of this form of government in America today. All means of coercion toward this end were approved, all objections regarded as treasonous, all decent motives dismissed as obsolete bourgeois morality. To these men, human life was nothing but raw material to be hacked and hammered into whatever shape their ideology might dictate. And here, at this point in the article, there's a picture of soldiers removing grain from the hole in the ground, which was evidently hidden under some straw or hay on a Ukrainian farm. The caption reads, a communist requisition squad removes grain hidden by Ukrainian peasants desperate to survive. People ate rodents, ants, and worms. Robert Conquest estimated in Harvest of Sorrow that five million Ukrainians died. Conquest also noted that forced collectivization killed off some 200,000 Germans of the lower Volga. They had come there due to, due to the encouragement of fellow German Catherine the Great. And the Cossack regions of the Don and Kuban were totally decimated. Now, conquest is only giving his numbers for the in the harvest of Salo for the second Holodomor, the one under Joseph Stalin and not the first. So what we're going to distinguish between those as the article progresses. Thus Stalin wrote in 1928 that the purpose of his offensive against the farmers throughout the Soviet Empire was to remold the peasantry, its mentality and production along collectivist lines. People who thought those lines would have anything to do with shared austerity or the cantabout 
from each according to his capacity and to each according to his need, were sadly, often fatally mistaken. Alexander Sultan, Sultanitsyn, that's how I will pronounce it. I'm not sure if that's, if that's the way that most people pronounce it. Alexander Sultanitsyn estimates in the Gulag Archipelago that some 60 million people died there from 1918 to 1953, at which time this horrific system still held some 10 million in camps, ranging across one-sixth of the earth. It was run by the secret police organization, known first as the Cheka, then as the GPU, then as the NKVD, then the MGB, and finally the KGB. They're all acronyms for the same organization. Its founder, Felix Jerzinski, said the Cheka is not a court. We stand for organized terror, quoting Solzhenitsyn. Lenin had called for concentration camps as early as 1918, but their great expansion began in 1929. At that time, a Turkish Jew and former Black Sea lumber tycoon named Naftali Frankel dazzled Stalin with a grandiose plan to build socialism with slave labor on a starvation diet. His guiding principle, we have to get everything out of a prisoner in the first three months. After that, we don't need him anymore. Frankel's pitch gained him the title Chief Overseer of the Labor Battle. Later, he was made a general in the NKVD. To populate a system where the death rate was so high, intentionally so, because Stalin always feared an uprising, a constant supply of fresh victims had to be supplied. Thus, millions of loyal Soviet citizens were falsely accused, and an entire national minority sent to join them. Accusations were especially facilitated by Andrei Vyshinsky's 1937 degree that it wasn't necessary to prove a person had said or done something wrong, but only that he or she might have done it. As MGB colonel or colonel Vladimir Komarov told the victim, you keep saying that you're only accused but not convicted. You must understand that this distinction does not exist for us. Everyone's guilty. Children were encouraged to denounce their parents, pupils, their teachers. Nor were the children spared. They had once made up half the gulag population. It is being, it being customary for whole families to be shipped off and worked to death. In the Kalima gold fields, fields or the coal mines of Vokuda. Even 12-year-olds were subject to a full penalty. A Ukrainian boy in the terror famine getting eight years for having two potatoes in his pocket. Why hadn't the Soviet people, including Ukrainians, revolted against this hellish tyranny? Their failure to do so certainly reinforced a negative image of them in the outside world. Yet how could the people rise against Stalin 
when most had never known anything but autocracy, and the secret police were everywhere. And, and may it be said that the Ukraine suffered greatly during World War One, and then during the Bolshevik Revolution, many Ukrainians, Stephen Bandera being the most famous, did stand and resist the Bolsheviks. And, and when they were defeated, they suffered horrific losses. And the, um, the retribution carried out by the Bolsheviks against the Ukraine was incredibly harsh. Many millions of people probably died then. The, um, the Ukrainian people from that time, which was the Bolshevik device and, and for control, and we will see that later in this article, just like the Russian people, were um, divided because great numbers of them were bribed by the Jews in Moscow to tell on themselves, to tell on each other. Some Ukrainians, ethnic Ukrainians, ethnic Russians were promised food to eat if they would help control Ukrainians and Russians who weren't going to eat. It's that simple. And our people cave into that every time. The Jews are always successful in getting enough people from the, the, the host country that they are being parasites, where they're being parasites, where they're sucking their blood dry. The Jews have always been successful in getting enough people from the hosts to cooperate with the Jews. Look at America today. And today it's basically the other way around. Most of us are cooperating with these damn Jews. Their character is shown in an order sent by NKVD boss Nikolai Yetsov to one of his de deputies. <clears throat> you are charged with the task of eliminating 10,000 enemies of the people. Report results by signal. Such ruthless repression deprived the people of forming a resistance leadership. What could potential rebels do? People had to keep their heads down. In such a melee, the safest advice was that which Lazar Moisevich Kaganovich, a.k.a. Kogan, a Jew, of course, gave to his niece, never ask anyone about anything. The few centers of rebellion Notably, some Ukrainian villages in the Great Famine were wiped out. It must be noted that the lives of millions of people had undergone a huge dislocation, leaving them even more powerless to rebel. As we read in Red Empire by Hughes and Welfare, Gwyneth Hughes and Simon Welfare, Every industrial revolution requires a massive shift of population from the country to the towns. 17 million people made that journey in the years of Stalin's five-year plan. Illiterate, wretched, hungry, pushed around by a new ruling elite which despised them. These peasant hordes became the new working class of Russia. Now here... In the article, there's a picture of two younger-looking Ukrainians, and they're standing, they look like in their late teens, mid-teens, standing on a crude wooden tower in a farmer's field. The Bolsheviks were 
were adept at getting people to spy on each other. And they controlled the population by using it against itself. The caption reads, one of the watchtowers built in fields throughout Ukraine farm regions during Stalin's starvation holocaust. Party activists such as the young pioneers seen in this photo kept on a lookout for snippers, people attempting to gather ears of corn. Any peasant caught with stored grain was treated as a kulak. This meant that the family would be shot or deported to slavery in Siberia. The terror famine of 1932-33 was not the first. Ukraine has always struggled for independence from its enormous and aggressive neighbor. That struggle became especially fierce after the Red Revolution, when Ukraine's declaration of statehood triggered a Bolshevik invasion costing some four million lives. Not only was Ukraine the breadbasket of Europe, but a region of prosperous and pious farming communities. The southern Ukraine, in particular, exemplified those three things the Bolsheviks had sworn to abolish, private property, religion, and nationalism. After the massacre of Ukrainian leaders ordered by Lenin, who in 1918 offered his thugs a cash bounty for every landowner and priest they hanged, the 1921-22 famine caused by grain exportation killed millions more. Leon Trotsky was then heading the Red Army with General R.P. Edeman as his grain-grabbing deputy, said Trotsky that rich granary is ours. The brutal means used to secure it, along with an anti-nationalist campaign which saw Ukrainians shot dead on a street merely for speaking their own language, caused such a drop in production that famine appeared in other parts of the Red Empire. Fearing a general loss of control, the Bolsheviks had to invite foreign aid relief. Even then, they insisted, through spokesman Maxim Maximovich Litnov, that food relief go only to other parts of the empire, not Ukraine. So this is 11 or 12 years before the end of Stalin's, or 10 years before the beginning of Stalin's terror famine in the Ukraine. In fact, Isidore Larin of Ghost Plan, which is a five-year commission, was still pushing for more seizures when transport transports were leaving points only 20 miles away from starving villages. Yet, Litvinov told the world that the USSR was again exporting grain. The Soviet government was actually holding its own starving citizens as hostages to be ransomed for foreign aid. This duplicity was neatly illustrated by the spectacle of two ships berthed side by side in Murmansk, an American unloading grain for relief and a Soviet loading grain for sale 
in Hamburg, Germany. And I have some comments about this. I have some lengthy comments. The Americans, and this is in the 1920s, this is not in the time of Stalin. The Americans were complicit in this from the start. There was an organization called the American Relief Administration, which was formed in 1919 to relieve hunger in Europe after the First World War. Herbert Hoover, then the future president, he wasn't president for another nine years, ten years, was the program director. It was initially funded by Congress with $100 million, and it also received private donations. The ARA, the American Relief Administration, supposedly provided over 4 million tons of food and supplies to 23 different European countries between 1919 and 1923. By 1922, relief to those countries was no longer necessary and the ARA ended all of its operations except in Russia, where it operated until 1923. And for that part of the operation, the American Congress had appropriated an additional $20 million. That was a lot of money back then, when a loaf of bread was a couple of pennies. The Wikipedia article on the American Relief Administration sanitizes its account of American relations with the USSR at this time to an incredible degree. Most Wikipedia articles related to communist Russia, to Soviet Russia, are heavily sanitized. Under the subheading ARA and Russian Famine of 1921, it says the following. When the Russian Famine of 1921 broke out, the ARA's director in Europe, Walter Lyman Brown, began negotiating with Soviet Deputy People's Commissar for Foreign Affairs, Maxim Litvinov, who we just mentioned, in Riga, Latvia. An agreement was reached on August 21, 1921, and an additional implementation agreement was signed by Brown and the People's Commissar for Foreign Trade, Leonid Krasin, on December 30, 1921. The U.S. Congress appropriated $20 million for relief under the Russian Famine Relief Act of late 1921. At its peak, the ARA employed 300 Americans, more than 120,000 Russians, and fed 10.5 million people daily. Its Russian operations were headed by Colonel William N. Haskell. The medical division of the ARA functioned from November 21st to June 19, I'm sorry, from November 1921 to June 1923 and helped overcome the typhus epidemic, then ravaging Russia. The ARA's famine relief operations ran in parallel with much smaller Mennonite, Jewish and Quaker famine relief operations in Russia. The ARA's operations in Russia were shut down on June 15, 1923, after it was discovered that Russia renewed the export of grain, which had evidently been going on for quite a while. 
We're going to read another related article entitled, Russian Famine Relief. This article either portrays an appalling naivety among American politicians of the 1920s, or it represents a history which has been sanitized in order to disguise the fact that American government operates in spite of the interests of its own people in order to please internationalist interests, meaning, of course, the interests of the Jewish bankers. And we will see that that's the only logical conclusion anyway. The Russian Famine Relief Act of 1921 authorized the expenditure of $20 million for the purchase of American foodstuffs to send to post-revolutionary Russia for relief of the Russian famine of 1921. And the Ukraine didn't see any of that. The act was overseen by Herbert Hoover, serving simultaneously as the U.S. Secretary of Commerce and the head of the American Relief Administration, and signed into law in late December. With the Russian Civil War, now Wikipedia calls the Bolshevik Revolution, and, and, and the takeover of Russia, and the destruction of loyalist Russian forces, a civil war. It was really an invasion launched out of New York. That's the reality of the situation. It was an invasion launched out of the Lower East Side in Manhattan. It was not a civil war. Wikipedia, as I said, sanitizes Soviet history and Bolshevik history to a great degree. With the Russian Civil War winding down, and Lenin having implemented the pseudo-capitalist new economic policy in order to get the Russian economy back on its feet, some, like Hoover and Senator William Bora of Idaho, had hoped that the aid would serve as political leverage against the Bolshevik regime. regime. That, that's taken into account that maybe they're moral people, but they're not moral at all. They're Jews. Others, President Warren G. Harding, Senator Henry Cabot Lodge, and the business conservatives within the administration refused to countenance the idea unless the Soviets were willing to pay back the money loaned to the Tsar's regime during the war. Lenin refused. And so while the act was a genuine humanitarian gesture, no it wasn't, they just wanted their money back, it accomplished little in changing the tense relationship between the United States and the Soviet Union. Now, perhaps American politicians during the period had suffered from a combination of naivety and deceit. It's hard to tell. Here is an excerpt on the situation of the famine in the USSR from Calvin Coolidge's first annual messages, President, President which is given in December 6th of 1923. And... It's subtitled Russia. It's probably um, in the first half of his, his State of the Union address. They just didn't call it that back then, but that's what it was. Our diplomatic relations. This is Calvin Coolidge. It sounds like some Jew just handed him this script. That's my opinion. Our diplomatic relations, lately so largely interrupted, are now being resumed. But Russia presents notable difficulties. We have every desire to see that great people who are our traditional friends 
Israelites restored to their position among the nations of the earth. And of course, to do that would require extricating the Jewish Bolsheviks. We have relieved their pitiable destitution with an enormous charity, referring to the work of the ARA. Our government offers no objection to the carrying on of commerce by our citizens with the people of Russia. Our government does not propose, however, to enter into relations with another regime which refuses to recognize the sanctity of international obligations. I do not propose to butter away for the privilege of trade any of the cherished rights of humanity. I do not propose to make merchandise of any American principles. These rights and principles must go wherever the sanctions of our government go. But while the favor of America is not for sale, I am willing to make very large concessions for the purpose of rescuing the people of Russia, already encouraging evidences of returning to the ancient ways of society can be detected, but more are needed. Whenever there appears any disposition to compensate our citizens who were despoiled and to recognize that debt contracted with our government, not by the Tsar, but by the newly formed Republic of Russia, whenever the active spirit of enmity to our institutions is abated, whenever there appear works meet for repentance, our country ought to be the first to go to the economic and moral rescue of Russia. We have every desire to help and no desire to injure. We hope the time is near at hand when we can act. Coolidge's address seems to be extremely naive, altruistic, and perhaps even ignorant of the nature of the Bolshevik regime. This is especially evident where he says, already encouraging evidences of returning to the ancient ways of society can be detected. And, and that must be a reference to the five-year plan, which was implemented by Lenin. The new economic program, which actually laid aside some of his Marxist agenda. He also seems to care about American investors who lost money in the Bolshevik takeover, and he only seems to care about them in reality, where he mentions any disposition to compensate our citizens who were despoiled. Of course, most of those Americans who lost money at that time in Russia were probably Jews themselves. That statement concerning... Um, Russia's evidence of returning to ancient ways of society has to be a reference to Lenin's new economic plan, as if it was not simply a preventative measure, but instead as if it represented some sort of change of heart among the Bolsheviks. It is clear that Coolidge was advancing the idea that these devils could repent, and to me this is incredibly uh, ignorant. It can't possibly be naive. Coolidge could not have been so ignorant on purpose, however, and his words must have been engineered so as to dupe an unsuspecting American public. And that's because we have a document posted in facsimile and in text at the Mein Kampf Project 
at Christiania. And that document's entitled, A Memorandum on Certain Aspects of the Bolshevist Movement in Russia, a U.S. Government Report from 1919. Less than four years it was published before Coolidge gave this address. The report was produced by the U.S. Department of State and presented to the chairman of the Committees on Foreign Relations of both the U.S. House of Representatives and the Senate, which at that time is the same Henry Cabot Lodge mentioned here, outlined, mentioned here earlier in connection with the ARA, outlined in this report are many of the horrors which the Bolsheviks had already perpetrated against the Russian people, as well as their plans to export Bolshevism for world revolution. It's all outlined in that report. Other aspects of the report show very well that the American government was fully aware of the evils of Bolshevism, its objectives, and the forces which were behind it. Many of Lenin's own writings are included in that report to show the true nature of Lenin, and not only the, the political rhetoric behind things like the new economic program. The famines of the 1920s should have been used by Americans as an overt means of ousting the Bolsheviks and punishing them for their crimes. And instead, American politicians chose to become complicit partners of the Bolsheviks, and Warren Harding and Calvin Coolidge and Herbert Hoover were all in on the scam. They were all in on it. The only way to reconcile the discrepancies found in American political thought of this period, reflected in Coolidge's speech, reflected in the existence of the ARA and the huge outlays by Congress, where the Ukraine was getting none of that food, not any of that food went to the Ukraine. The only way to reconcile those discrepancies is to understand the international forces which were controlling both the American politicians and the Bolsheviks. Roosevelt's recognition of the USSR which happened in 1933, is inevitable in light of Coolidge's comments here 10 years earlier. So we were already down that road. America was in bed with the Jews, and the Bolsheviks were a branch of Judaism. Now we will return to the other Holocaust, the terror famine in Ukraine by Peter Lorden. Lenin had to make a tactical retreat. This is describing the new economic plan. Temporarily abandoning Marxist dogma, his new economic plan encouraged Ukrainian culture while fostering the growth of an allegedly independent Communist Party of Ukraine. So at this time, Lenin had already starved the Ukrainians for several years and only then realized that the Soviet system wasn't profiting from starving the Ukrainians, that he had to get them back to work so that they could produce food. That granary, that breadbasket that the Ukraine was famous for had to be healthy so that the Soviets could reap it. So he had to start letting them eat again. Basically, that's what the new economic plan is about. And it's a political ploy and 
Coolidge, either shrewdly or ignorantly or naively, I can't yet pick one of the three, but I'm sure that elements of all three were involved, thought that that represented a, a turnaround for Lenin, that he was going to repent of his evil Marxist ways. And it certainly isn't the case. But by 1928, with Lenin dead and his own position secure, Stalin canceled the new economic plan. He launched a five-year plan of industrialization to be financed by exports. A principal export was grain. Since Bolshevik theory held that its production, along with political control of the peasantry, could best be increased, increased by forced collectivization, the facade of Ukrainian independence collapsed. Collectivization meant herding all agricultural workers into a kalkaz, or collective farming complex, where the state would own everything and tell them what to do. Stalin's first and terribly consequential step toward it was to get rid of independent farmers. This category came to include even the smallest of smallholders, such as those who owned more than one cow, or had hired others to work for them. And with this, there's a picture of peasant men and children standing in, in what might be a cabin, and holding their hands in the air as if they were casting a vote of approval that the look on their faces denied. And the caption reads, hollow-eyed peasants vote, quote-unquote, to join a collective farm. The alternative was a virtual death sentence of 10 years in Siberian concentration camps. Brian Moynihan wrote in the Russian century, two million kulaks were dumped in special settlements on a 400-mile stretch between between Gryazovitz and Archangel, at Yemetsk, there was a vast camp of families that had been separated from their fathers. 32,000 lived in 97 barracks with no medical care. These kulaks were denounced as vermin, capitalist rotors, and enemies of the people. Stalin's overall plan for liquidating the kulaks as a class throughout the Soviet Union was headed by Commissar of Agriculture A. Yakolev, and he's a Jew whose real name was Epstein. Its expediter in Ukraine was Yakov Bauman, another Jew. In this de-kulakization campaign, meaning getting rid of all the small independent farmers, in this de-kulakization campaign of 1929 to 32, some three to four million Ukrainians were either murdered or shipped away, often entire families, to early death in the gulags. And, and that actually um, at least doubles the minimal number of Ukrainians killed from the policies of the Lenin years. Only the poorest peasants then remained, and it was these who were left to starve in villages from which the Bolsheviks had systematically removed every scrap of food. KGB defector Viktor Kravchenko wrote of them, they had been trapped and left to starve, each in his own home, 
by a political decision made in a far-off capital around conference and banquet tables. When told in that capital of their hideous suffering, Stalin replied, Moscow has no tears. In July 1932, the Ukrainian Communist Party had seen that a famine was imminent and asked that expropriations be reduced. Moscow's response conveyed by Vyacheslav M. Molotov and Kaganovich was that the quotas must be met. To ensure this, to ensure this, Stalin sent in the murderous Pavel Postyshev with his lieutenants. Yevager and Mendel Karyevich, and later, the later, a senior member of the Politburo. Other accomplices, other accomplices, and several of those names are, are, are names of Jews. Other accomplices included Eli Kaminsky, chairman of the Collective Farm Center, and Z.A. Bolitsky, head of the Ukrainian GPU, and he's one of the few names here who is reportedly not a Jew. He reported to Stalin's crony, a General Voroshilov, in mid-1933, quote, from 8 to 9 million people, this is by 1933, and, and this is double the figure from 1929 to 1932, from 8 to 9 million people have already perished in the Ukraine alone. Given that a few years later, Voroshilov would calmly countersign lists of thousands of his brother officers to be executed in Stalin's purge of the military, this news is not likely to have upset him. Now, Voroshilov was actually the consummate traitor. He was a Russian, ethnic Russian, born in the Ukraine. But he was married to a Jewess who was born as Golda Gordman, who came from a Jewish family from a town in the Ukraine. Many of um, the Bolshevik or the Soviet leaders who were not Jews, many of them were married to Jews. But the prime movers and overall enforcers of the terror famine were Stalin's trustees, Molotov, who was another Russian married to a Jewish, Jewess, and Kaganovich, who was a Jew, Lazar Kaganovich, who were to be partners again in the terror of 1936 to 1938. Roy Medvedev in All Stalin's Men tells us that Molotov, long Stalin's foreign minister, and ever the coldly efficient bureaucrat, played a particularly sinister part in Ukraine in 1932, where he directed grain procurement operations in the southern provinces. That means taking all the grain from all the farmers. As for Kogin, or that's the short name for Kaganovich. He was always Stalin's chief troubleshooter, the man relied on to get things done, no matter what the cost in human suffering. When Soviet arms reconquered the Polish Ukraine in 1944, he was the man Stalin sent to speed up collectivization. Kahan, however, and, and that's a, um, a reference to Stuart Kahan, who's probably a Jew with that name, the, um, 
the author of a book named The Wolf of the Kremlin. Kahan, however, stated Stalin felt that as a Jew, Lazar, meaning Kaganovich, would be more ruthless in eliminating Ukrainian nationalist tendencies. He was not disappointed. In addition to the millions dying in Ukraine itself, others died in the nearby Don and Kuban areas. All told, some 8 million Ukrainians starved to death in the Holocaust of 1932-33, which has to be put on top of the 4 million which died from 29 to 32, and, and the 4 or 5 million which died in the Lenin years. And we have, a, well, we have a, a Ukraine that's absolutely decimated. Meanwhile, Stalin annually sold to the West expropriated grain equivalent to a quarter ton for each starved individual. No one should doubt that the terror famine was man-made, a deliberate act of genocide. It stopped precisely at the Ukraine-Russia border. Roosevelt was only continuing, continuing a policy which was obviously initiated in the Coolidge administration. America and the other powers of the West were complicit in the Ukraine terror famine. It could have been stopped in 1921, or at least by 1923. Starving Ukrainians were forbidden to leave their homeland, and no one was allowed to bring food into it. Tens of thousands of quote-unquote loyal urban communists brainwashed to view the peasants as, as their enemies, a lot of these so-called urban communists are actually Jews, were sent into the countryside to seek out whatever food the peasants might have hidden. One of them was Isaac Babel. Another was Lev Kopolev, later well-known as a dissident writer. Well, both of these men were Jews, and both of them were born in the Ukraine. Red Empire quotes him, quotes um, Lev Kopolev, our great goal was the universal triumph of communism, and for the sake of that goal, everything was permissible, to lie, to steal, to destroy hundreds of thousands and even millions of people. These expropriators were backed by a half million Red Army soldiers and countless GPU agents, not to mention the ubiquitous commissars assigned since 1928 to enforce collectivization. How these later had behaved, descending on peaceful villages to bully the peasants into abandoning their independence, is best described by Miran Talat, who lived through it as a boy. And this is a reference to his book, Execution by Hunger, The Hidden Holocaust. The arrogance of a commissar, Zietlin, is tellingly presented there. Peasants were told, if you want to eat, join the Kolkhoz. But in the end, there was nothing to eat even there. Watchtowers were set up in the fields, and anyone trying to glean a few grains from a harvested field could be shot 
for violating socialist property. That charge was even brought against men who tried to feed their children by catching fish in a nearby river. These people were supposed to die, and anything they did to avoid it was a criminal act. That there was plenty of food could be seen in piles of grain left to rot, but heavily guarded and maddeningly beyond reach. Whole transports were willfully destroyed in order to boost the export price. All of this is detailed in The Harvest of Sorrow, the book by Robert Conquest, previously cited. Overall figures on the death toll from Stalin's agricultural policy are hard to pin down, as Nikita Khrushchev subsequently admitted, without mentioning his own bloody record in Ukraine, nobody was keeping count and Stalin did his best to ensure that nobody could. He had the 1937 census report suppressed and made it a crime even to utter the Russian word for famine. The once prosperous Don and Kuban areas, where some five million Ukrainians had lived, were reduced to the same utter desolation as their southern homeland. Particularly stomach-turning is Conquest's chapter on the fate of the children, who may have accounted for some four million of Ukraine's total dead, orphans of Kulak families, were treated with special cruelty, ostracized or beaten up, denied the little food given to others. Few dared to help them because of the Leninist axiom in the class struggle, philanthropy is evil. Many were shot or drowned in sunken barges. Thousands of others were left to starve under guard in isolated camps or barns or collected in a quote-unquote children's town which was actually a bare field. People asking their fate were told, the party is looking after them. Indeed it was. Their corpses were hauled away by night. In the midst of all this, Conquest tells the story of Deputy Commissar of Education, M.S. Epstein, who spoke in glowing terms of Soviet child care as compared to the pitiful status of children in the capitalist countries. Were there no foreign aid organizations to help the starving people from collectivization? And not only in Ukraine. Indeed, there were. But Stalin long refused to let them in. Soviet President Mikhail Kalinin even branded such organizations as political imposters. And Kalinin, too, is a Russian traitor. He was evidently himself born of a Russian peasant family. When foreign food distribution was finally permitted, Ukraine was again excluded. Stalin had learned from Lenin's salmon how effective a weapon hunger could be. He was now using it to crush Ukrainian nationalism once and for all. Here, we should perceive, we have to take this 
and and um, apply it to our perceptions of Ukraine today. And we should perceive that the true Ukrainian nationalists of today are actually living a they collectively are actually a living tribute to their fathers. In the next paragraph, Lorden talks about the Russians settled in Ukraine after most of the Ukrainian farmers were wiped out. These and their descendants and other Russians who have moved in since are among the separatists and other so-called Ukrainians of today who are Russian, who vote Russian who have a Soviet allegiance, and who have a consistently Marxist political ideology. If you look at the um, various elections that have been held in Ukraine over the last 20 or 30 years, or however long it's been since Ukrainian independence, I think it's since, what, 1991, so it might be 23 years, 24 years, you'll see that there's a... um, market division in the Ukraine, and it's because half the people of the Ukraine are Russians brought in from from Russia during the the, the times of Stalin, Khrushchev, Brezhnev. And, And these people, their allegiance is still remarkably, cohesively to the old Soviet system because these people believe that they are heroes, that their fathers defeated Nazism. It, it's really an incredible psychology. And, and they see nationalist Ukrainians as Nazis. And, and they cons- consistently um, vote counter to Ukrainian interests and, and they consider all Ukrainian nationalists to be Nazis because when the National Socialist, when, when National Socialist Germany, to um, avoid the onslaught that Stalin had planned on, on Western Europe, and, and when Hitler had launched Operation Barbarossa, and in, and defeated Stalin's armies and repelled them and and invaded Ukraine, the Germans were seen as liberators. This is why. It's only seven years, six years after this that Adolf Hitler is invading the Ukraine. And they're seen, they're, they're loved, they're seen as liberators, they're seen as freedom. This is why. And today, what's going on in Ukraine is still this same battle. Back to Peter Lorden. No outsiders must interfere with his genocidal project, meaning Stalin's. When it was over in late 1933, Stalin formed a committee for migration to settle the depopulated area with Russian farmers. Those sent in had to drag corpses out of the houses and dispose of them. Although they cleaned and whitewashed everywhere, the stench of death remained so pervasive that many gave up and returned to their own homes. As the distinguished 
editor of New York's Ukrainian Quarterly, Dr. Walter Dushnik, summed it up in a 1983 pamphlet, so it took 50 years. The first books that appear on this in the West are in the early 1980s. It took 50 years. Summed it up in a 1983 pamphlet. This was a gigantic holocaust inflicted on a nation starving to escape Moscow colonialism. And at this point in the article, there's a picture of the Fabian socialist moron. He is a moron. George Bernard Shaw, seated in the back of a passing automobile. And the caption reads, Stalin had few prestigious dupes with the intellectual influence of George Bernard Shaw. Here, GBS is being driven in Moscow during the height of the Ukraine forced famine. He wrote in the Times of London that tales of a half-starved population dwelling under the lash of a ruthless tyrant were nonsense. He wrote of crowds of brightly dressed, well-fed, happy-looking workers in a time when orthodox cathedrals and churches were being raised or turned into warehouses, Shaw claimed. In the USSR, unlike Britain, there is freedom of religion. And, and wow, George Bernard Shaw was... I, I can't say enough bad things about that clown. The... Um, at the Mein Kampf project at Christiania, we were sent from a friend in the Ukraine some photographs last year. And one set of pictures was taken at a monastery, and another set of pictures was taken at a synagogue. And the monastery has a plaque, and, and the synagogue has a plaque. And the plaque on the monastery explained how the monastery was closed down after the Bolshevik Revolution and remained closed during the entire Soviet era, just about, until the days of Brezhnev. And the, um, the church at the monastery was turned into a theater. Well, the plaque at the synagogue in the USSR, in the Ukraine, I'm sorry, they're both in Kiev, the plaque at the synagogue complained that when the, when the Nazis came, they forced the synagogue to close. But what do the two plaques really tell us? The two plaques really tell us that National Socialist Germany had closed the synagogues in Ukraine and reopened the churches, because they did. It was closed again after the defeat of Germany, but they reopened the church where the Soviets had closed the churches and left the synagogues alone. And the two plaques prove that beyond doubt. These are actual pictures taken on of actual buildings in Kiev, and, and Americans aren't told these things, but Ukrainians must know them. The synagogues stayed open during the Soviet years. The churches were closed. Back to Peter Lorden. What was the world's response to this horror? Some gruesome photos in newspapers. A few, a few demonstrations. But these were mostly swamped by Soviet propaganda. 
Officials in London and Washington knew the truth, but took the line that this was an internal affair of the Soviet Union to be ignored for the sake of preserving diplomatic relations with the friendly power. So we were complicit. The British and the Americans were complicit in perhaps 16 to 20 million Ukrainians being starved to death or butchered. At the same time, 1933, that's the year we're in here, at the same time, Roosevelt was getting ready to have the USSR officially recognized by the United States government. Lorden says, part of a massive cover-up by that power was the carefully sanitized tour for foreign dignitaries, such as French Prime Minister Edouard Heroyd, or who then denounced any talk of famine as Nazi propaganda. The Nazi National Socialists in Germany had only come to power in 1932. The cover-up was also reinforced by communist sympathizers in both the British Foreign Office and the American State Department, as well as by Fabian Socialist George Bernard Shaw and James and Beatrice Potter Webb. Tolstoy tells us in the Gulag Archipelago that some affluent Americans also helped by pushing for American recognition of the USSR in return for a lucrative deal on stolen czarist artworks. Banker Andrew Mellon and the Hammer clan, principally Armand Hammer and his father, were prominent here, Armand's father having once led the U.S. Communist Party. His name was Julius Hammer, I believe. Mellon was Secretary of the Treasury from 1921 until 1932. Mellon, the Pittsburgh banker. Then he served as ambassador to the United Kingdom for two years, in 32 and 33. These were positions, remember we have the, the, the Federal Reserve takeover in, in 1913, then we have the Depression from 1929. Andrew Mellon was Secretary of Treasury through much of the Depression. These are positions which at that time only a trader could hold. The Hammer clan were also longtime patrons of the political Gore family from Tennessee. We have the Hammers to thank for Al Gore. A similar role, back to Lorden, a similar role was to be played in the years of 1937-38 by Ambassador Joseph E. Davies, whose best-selling book, Mission to Moscow, says Tolstoy, was a sustained apologia, or apology, for all of Stalin's excesses. That role was to be played again in the 1940s, according to Vaxberg. Vaxberg is a, um, a more recent Russia, Russian writer and historian, evidently being cited by Tolstoy in Tolstoy's book, Stalin's Secret War. According to Vaxberg, that role was to be played again in the 1940s, 
by such American, and that's a misuse of the term, American literati as Howard Fast, Shalom Ash, Lillian Hellman, and Albert Kahn, whose shameless lies praising Stalinism and Stalin, it is impossible to read without revulsion. Now, Howard Fast was a Jew born in America to to a Ukrainian Jewish father, Ash Hellman Khan, all of those famous authors of the 40s, they were all Jews. And Americans were buying and reading their books. And they deserved to be lied to. And they were lied to again and again. The Jewish-owned media creates these great Jewish authors. There's another picture here of what is apparently a shiny new line of tractors with peasant drivers on some sort of field, a small cabin with a wooden fence in the background. The caption reads, this ludicrously staged Soviet propaganda scene implying the wonders of collective farming loses its humorous aspects when it is realized that it was photographed in 1933 during the Ukrainian Holocaust. Brian Moynihan wrote in the Russian century that three years after the start of collectivization, the number of sheep and goats had been reduced by two-thirds the number of cattle and horses halved. That's in Russia. In the Ukraine, it was a lot worse than that. Stalin's chief spokesman in his famine was again Maxim Litvinov, now risen to foreign minister. Now, Litvinov was born into a wealthy Jewish banking family, and his original name was Meyer Enoch Moshevitz Wallach Finkelstein. That's a Jewish name if I ever heard one about five times. He steadfastly dismissed all reports of famine in Ukraine as lies put out by counter-revolutionary provocateurs. To their eternal discredit, the bulk of the Moscow Foreign Press Corps backed him up, referring to all of the Western journalists who were assigned to Moscow to cover Soviet news. Only a few most notably, the Manchester Guardian's Malcolm Muggeridge tried to get the truth out. The rest, anxious to keep in with Soviet censors, allowed themselves to be led by a man whom Muggeridge later called the greatest liar I have met in 50 years of journalism. Now, if they were under Soviet censors, they're obviously censors. <coughs> there obviously should not have been a press corps in Moscow, except that the media is run by Jews. They're not there for the truth. And, and this is um, full evidence of that. The man whom Muggeridge called the greatest liar he had met in 50 years of journalism Lorden goes on to say, that man was Walter Duranty, an English correspondent for the New York Times. He ridiculed scare stories about a non-existent famine while privately telling friends that the death toll could reach 10 million. 
the other correspondents even joined him in lampooning an honest Welsh writer named Garrett Evans. Now, that's not really his name. I don't know how. Lorden must have got confused or one of his sources, but we're going to talk about Garrett at length. The other correspondents even joined Durante in lampooning an honest Welsh writer named Garrett Evans, his real name is Gareth Jones, who backpacked to a famine area on his own and published a horrifying account of it in London. Now, Walter Durante is another anomaly of the times. He was evidently born into a Protestant family in Liverpool, England, and he became the biggest apologist for, for Joseph Stalin in Western journalism as a correspondent for the New York Times. In a 1990 article entitled The Editorial Notebook, Trench Coats, Then and Now, the New York Times admitted that Durante's articles were, quote-unquote, some of the worst reporting to appear in this newspaper. Of course, the New York Times and many other Jewish-controlled media outlets in the West were also fully complicit in the horrors of Bolshevism and communism, as well as the destruction of all those who withstood those horrors. The media, the Jewish-controlled media, is just as guilty as the Bolsheviks themselves. There were uh, a series of reports coming out of um, Britain and, and filed with the British and, and, and published in Britain called Russia Number One. And they are... Um, just the tip of the iceberg, but they're all British diplomatic reports sent to Britain, which detail a lot of the horrors of the Bolshevik Revolution, which American newspapers controlled by Jews were also sanitizing or not reporting on. And the American media, especially the powerful media outlets in New York and Washington were um, whitewashing the Soviet so-called experiment. Here we're going to make a digression to discuss this Garrett Evans. Evidently, Peter Lorden or his sources meant to refer to Garrett Jones. Jones finally received recognition for his deeds, for his bravery, in a book written by an American university pre professor named Roy Gamache, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, entitled Gareth Jones, Eyewitness to the Holodomor. Both Gareth Jones and Gamache's book were applauded in a June 2013 article at the website Wales Online, which was titled Welsh journalist hailed one of greatest eyewitnesses of truth for exposing 1930 Soviet famine. Here are some excerpts from that article. A former Western Mail, that was the paper that he wrote for, <coughs> the Western Mail, a former Western Mail reporter who exposed the 1930s famine 
and the Soviet Union that took up to 10 million lives has been hailed as one of, one of journalism's greatest eyewitnesses of truth. Now, the testimony of Garrett Jones is being used in a bid to have the famine, most of whose victims died in Ukraine. Recognized officially as a holodomor or genocide, this week, American University professor Ray Gamash, or Roy Gamash, that's their typographical error, apparently, from King's College, Pennsylvania, had been addressing meetings in Aberystwyth and Cardiff about his new book, Gareth Jones, Eyewitness to the Holodomor. Born in Barrie in 1905, Jones graduated from the University of Wales, Aberystwyth in 1926 with a first-class degree in French and from Trinity College, Cambridge in 1929 with a first-class honors degree in French, German, and Russian. In January 1930, he began work as a foreign affairs advisor to former British Prime Minister David Lloyd George. In the summer of 1931, he toured the Soviet Union with H.J. Hines II of the Food Company dynasty, producing a diary which probably contains the first usage of the word starve in relation to the collectivization of Soviet agriculture. In 1932, Jones returned to work for Lloyd George, helping him write his memoirs of World War I. In March 1933, he traveled to Russia and Ukraine, issuing on his return an article that was published by newspapers across the English-speaking world. Its best-known passage read, I walked along through, through villages and 12 collected farms. Everywhere was the cry, there is no bread, we are dying. This cry came from Every part of Russia, from the Volga, Siberia, White Russia, the North Caucasus, and Central Asia. I tramped through the Black Earth region because that was once the richest farmland in Russia and because the correspondents had been forbidden to go there to see for themselves what is happening. Which shows you how much of a dupe Walter Durante is. And this guy just walked on his own. In the train, a communist denied to me that there was a famine. I flung a crust of bread, which I had been eating from my own supply, into a spittoon. A peasant fellow passenger fished it out and ravenously ate it. I threw an orange peel into the spittoon, and the peasant again grabbed it and devoured it. The communist subsided. I stayed overnight in the village where there used to be 200 oxen and where there are now six. The peasants were eating the cattle fodder and had only a month's supply left. They told me that many had already died of hunger. Two soldiers came to arrest the thief. They warned me against travel by night as there were too many starving, desperate men. We are waiting for death was my welcome. But see, we still have our cattle fodder. Go farther south. There they have nothing. Many houses are empty of people already dead, they cried. Jones's testimony 
was not generally welcomed. With most not prepared to believe that Stalin would deliberately create a famine in which so-called enemies of the people starved to death. On March 31st, the New York Times published a denial of Jones's testimony by Walter Durante. Under the headline, Russians hungry but not starving. On May 13th, Jones published a strong rebuttal to, the, to Durante in the New York Times, standing by his report. So Gareth Jones is finally vindicated from the lies of Walter Durante and whoever the Jew bastards were that Durante was being paid to please because it's pretty evident that he was being paid to please somebody. Now to return to Peter Lorden's terror famine in the Ukraine and his discussion of Walter Durante. Durante's reward came in a rare interview with Stalin. Then his being allowed to accompany Litvinov on the Soviet foreign minister's American trip to negotiate FDR's December 1933 recognition of the Soviet Union. Other sources say this happened in November of that year. Then Durante, in the very year of the Holocaust, he'd helped to cover up, was honored by the Nation magazine for his enlightening and dispassionate journalism. He was eulogized in the New Yorker. Naturally, Carl Raddick lauded Durante in Pravda for his help in overcoming elements hostile to American recognition. In hindsight, it is so easy to see whose interests these media outlets were promoting. But most Americans would refuse to admit today that the Jewish media is still promoting those same interests. There can be no doubt whatsoever regarding the scope and incomprehensible brutality of the Ukraine forced famine. Yet one still hears it said by Soviet sympathizers, or Jews, that the famine and all the other Bolshevik crimes against humanity were actions taken out of historical necessity. Without such harsh measures, they say, Stalin could never have industrialized, never beaten Hitler. But how could beating Hitler have been helped by so oppressing your own subjects to the extent that many of them initially welcomed the Germans as liberators? Now, <clears throat> what, he, what, what he doesn't challenge, what Lorden fails to challenge here, is that Stalin's role in this famine was initiated four years before Hitler ever came into power. Stalin's role was only the continuance of Lenin's policy from the 20s, where millions of Ukrainians had already died. So the, the claim that without the harsh measures, Stalin couldn't have defeated Hitler isn't only wrong theoretically, it's just plain bullshit. It doesn't hold up at all. Stalin had these policies in place by 1929. Lenin died in 1928. 
Stalin immediately reversed Lenin's policy and started starving Ukrainians to death in 1929. Modin continues, Yet the lies of Litvinov and others still echo around the world, and they still constituted truths for the Soviet leadership as late as 1983, Canadian Prime Minister Brian Mulroney's declaration to a Ukrainian group in Toronto that the terror famine of 1932-33 was indeed a man-made tragedy manufactured in Moscow drew a stiff protest from the Soviet embassy in Ottawa. And of course, in 1983, there was still a Soviet embassy. And the cover-up continues. Now, this article was written in 1996, and we have come a long way since then, but we're still far from there. And the cover-up continues. It is understandable that those massive and protracted horrors rate no mention in any Soviet encyclopedia. Interestingly, why does the chronology of John Paxton's California issued 1933 Encyclopedia of Russian History show no entry at all for the apocryphal year of 1933. Such studied exclusions emphasize why the truth about the Ukrainian Holocaust must be told. Soltenheisen complained that none of the Bolshevik monsters, such as Molotov and Kaganovich, then still living comfortably in Moscow, had ever been tried for their crimes against humanity. Although some 86,000, quote-unquote, Nazi war criminals had been convicted by 1966. He says the imagination and the spiritual strength of Shakespeare's evildoers stopped short at a dozen corpses because they had no ideology. Page 77 of the Gulag Archipelago. I haven't read the book, but evidently Soltenheisen used the character of evildoers as they were generally depicted by Shakespeare in discussions concerning ideology. The analogy, the analogy is that villains with an ideology behind their evil deeds are liable to commit much greater evils than the evils which even Shakespeare's wicked villains had perpetrated. Back to Lorden. The story of the Ukrainian Holocaust must, be, must continue to be told for the starved ghosts of all those people murdered six decades ago are still with us, begging for recognition. Their most fitting epitaph may be the cruel comment of the commissar responsible for sending 50,000 of those loyal urban communists into the Ukrainian countryside with orders to be ruthless in stripping it of food, as recorded by Conquest. Mendel Karyevich had told them, throw your bourgeois humanitarianism out the window. Act like Bolsheviks, worthy of Comrade Stalin. In other words, they were instructed to be brutal murderers. But those loyal urban, urban communists,
communists were for the most part the urban Jews of the Ukraine. This concludes our presentation of the article Terror Famine in the Ukraine by Peter J. Lorden. Here we will offer a conclusion of our own. Most of the people that write about the forced famines in the Ukraine in the 1920s and 30s, which may better be called Holodomors, using the plural, because there were two, one under Lenin, another under Stalin. Most of the people that write about these things wonder why these horrible events do not get more attention or why there is often resistance to their very recognition. What those people do not understand is that the Western media is entirely controlled by Jews. The Bolshevik leaders were all Jews. And Bolshevism, communism, and Marxism, as well as capitalism, are all Jewish. The EU and the Soviet Union, and now the Russian Federation, are also all under the control of Jews. The Holodomors do not advance Jewish interests. Nobody cares about dead white people. Rather, the emerging facts of the Holodomors inhibit Jewish interests. However, the supposed Holocaust of Jews by Hitler's Germans, even though it never even actually happened, does serve to advance Jewish interests, and Jewish interests demand world Jewish supremacy. That's Talmudism. That's the real Jewish religion. When the Ukrainian terror famines of the Soviet period were finally recognized as a genocide against Ukrainians by a Ukrainian politician, that politician was Viktor Yushchenko, a pawn of American interests. As soon as this happened, Abe Foxman, the Rothschild agent for Jewish interests in America, was dispatched to Ukraine in order to warn the Ukrainian government and keep them in check so that efforts to recognize a real genocide would not upset Jewish interests and their investment in their own Holocaust tale. Some Ukrainian websites protested Fox's bullying. For instance, Ukrainian Canada, a website which rather wittily bills itself as a site for Cossack Canucks, announced this in a February 2010 article entitled, Yushchenko, Ukraine's only president to recognize the Holodomor as genocide, bullied by the ADL not to compare with the Holocaust. The article said, Abe Foxman, of the head of the Anti-Defamation League, the world's largest advocate for Israel and fighting anti-Semitism, meets with Yushchenko's advisors and warns them not to compare the two genocides, the Holodomor and the Holocaust. Abe Foxman said, but one thing you need to be sensitive about is not to link it meaning the Holodomor, with the Holocaust. Be careful that it not be linked as your genocide and our genocide, because that would be counterproductive.
In an article in the Ukrainian language, not in English, in the Ukrainian language, dated November 25, 2010, the BBC reported, Israeli president advises Ukraine to forget history. This is really chutzpah. Shimon Perez is quoted as saying, if I were asked what to advise Ukraine, I would say, forget history. History is not important at all. <laughs> this is funny. You cannot repeat the mistakes. Yeah, I'm sorry. You cannot not repeat the mistakes of the past. You just make new. So the Jew, Shimon Perez, tells the Ukrainians to simply forget their history. Imagine a Ukrainian telling a Jew to forget history and to forget the mistakes of the past, or especially if a German did such a thing. Yet the Jews have used a falsely constructed version of history to plant Jewish museums commemorating a Holocaust which never happened in every nook and cranny of the globe. And to extort money, they use their history to export money and sympathy from practically every European nation, European citizen, and just about everyone of European blood. Abe Foxman is right. It would certainly prove counterproductive to Jewish world supremacy to compare to Holland more in the Holocaust, the Jewish media rather successfully characterizes all nationalism as Nazism. And in these last two years, we have seen louder and shriller accusations in that respect leveled at all Ukrainians who resist Russian rule over the Ukraine. If the truth about the Holodomor were widely acknowledged and its facts made known, it would become evident that the reason the Ukrainians saw Hitler's Germany as a liberating force, and it was, was because they were so oppressed by the Soviets that perhaps 15 or 20 million of them were killed. The next logical step is the understanding that Adolf Hitler truly did seek to defend Christian Europe from the barbaric Soviet onslaught, while America and Britain were allied with the Soviet beast and complicit in the destruction of Christian Europe. It is also no small matter that the great majority of the Bolsheviks were Jews, and Stalin was also most likely ethnically Jewish, and he and most of his henchmen were either Jews or were married to Jews. Now, sadly, Ukraine is being torn apart once again, and Ukrainian nationalists have been forced into the arms of the Jewish cabal running America and the European Union. The Holodomor is still going on. White Europeans can only have salvation in Christ. Until then, the Holodomor will continue. Thank you for listening. I'll be here tomorrow afternoon. with Stan Longshanks. 
White Nationalist Cognitive Dis Dissonance, Part 2. Praise Yahweh, and good night.